This is the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. Welcome to the Wealth Ability Show, where we're always discovering how to make way more money and pay way less tax. This is Tom Wheelwright, your host, founder, and CEO of WealthAbility. So we are in this 10-year boom and bust cycle, and here we are again in the bust side of the cycle. And this is something I've been looking at for many, many years. Um, how do you, you know, how do you anticipate these booms and busts? What do you do during these booms and busts? So today we have two of the experts, Alex Pollock and Howard Adler. And uh, the, uh, we have two of the best um, that there are on this topic. They've written a book called Surprised Again, the COVID Crisis and the New Market Bubble. And now 10 years from now, you can write a new one, guys. So uh, if you would, <laughs> uh, let's start with you, uh, Howard. Um, give us a little bit of your background and why you guys are talking about this. And then Alex, uh, same for you. Sure. Thank you very, very much, Tom. And thank you for having us on your show. Uh, I'm a lawyer by training for uh, over 30 years. I was a partner at uh, Gibson, Dunn & Crutcher, LLP, where I, um, I was co-head of their corporate transactional practice. Before that, I'd been uh, uh, executive vice president and general counsel of the Riggs National Bank in Washington, D.C. Uh, from 2019 to 2021, I served as Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for the Financial Stability Oversight Council. And one of the jobs of the council is to, uh, to uh, find risk in the financial system and remediate it. And uh, obviously nobody uh, foresaw this particular crisis. As our book says, we, we have had a crisis about once every 10 years. Uh, it's just that nobody can tell exactly where it's coming from because of the very nature of financial uncertainty. And generally, nobody foresees these crises. Nobody foresaw the Great Depression in, in uh, 1929. Nobody really foresaw the, the Great Recession in 2008, 2009. And certainly, nobody put together the idea that a health crisis through political action would morph into an entire shutdown for the first time in history of an economy and lead to uh, a, a, another staggering financial crisis, followed by uh, the government pumping in liquidity, building up the economy, building up a, bu a bubble, and now that bubble is deflating again. Let me turn it over to Alex. Thanks, Howard. I, I am Alex Pollock. I'm a senior fellow at the Mises Institute, a pre-market think tank. Uh, before that, uh, Howard and I worked together in, in the Treasury. Uh, I was the uh, number two in the Office of Financial Research, which, uh, like uh, Howard's staff at the uh, Financial uh, Stability Oversight Council, tries to look ahead and see what we uh, what, what may be coming. Uh, Howard and I worked very closely together on that. Uh, when the administration changed, he said to me, why don't we write a book about this? Great idea. So uh, here's the book, Surprised Again. I, I have a previous book called Finance and Philosophy, Why We're Always Surprised. So this one is Surprised Again. Uh, uh, awesome. <laughs> and yeah. there, uh, there were a, a number of surprises uh, in this one. As Howard said, uh, while it was very clear scientifically that uh, a... Uh, some new pandemic, some uh, mutated virus 
uh, would go around the world. That was probable or, or maybe even certain over time. Uh, nobody, including, unfortunately, Howard and me, uh, uh, linked the fact that if that happened, you would then get political actions, which closed down a big part of the, of the economy, not only in this country, but in others. And that, in turn, would trigger uh, uh, a, 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 an economic uh, contraction of amazing proportions. And thinking about that, that would panic markets. So we got a we got a financial market panic in the uh, in the spring of uh, 2020. The panic of 2020, where every financial market was dropping uh, like a rock. And one of the things we do in this book is this, the history of that flow, uh, and try to remind people. It's sort of even financial memories are so short, uh, as you know. It's sort of hard to remember already how bad it was. That we try to get people to to remember the intense uncertainty and how it seemed like there would be no bottom and maybe there'd be a depression and all of the all of the things that were were governing markets at that point, primarily fear of different kinds. So, so uh, that's part of the history and my own history. I have been working in Washington think tanks on problems of political finance uh, for uh, more than fifteen years. Uh, before that, I ran the Federal Home Loan Bank of Chicago for about 13 oh. years. And uh, and I have been in, in banking and finance uh, all the time since I finished studying philosophy. Uh, hence, uh, hence philosophy and finance. <laughs> there you go. So um, let, let's start, if we can, let's start with this crisis. And then let's go back and, and look at historically and go to that 10-year cycle. Because uh, that's actually something I've been looking at for many, many years. Um, this 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 ten year cycle and, and how to predict it and how to how to deal with it, but if you look at this crisis, so you know when we look when we look at inflation, inflation simply too much money chasing too few goods, right? I mean it's a pretty simple uh, computation, and so we knew we had um, uh, too few goods. Right, because of the pandemic, so we had had all the supply chain disruption, and now all of a sudden you put in huge amounts of money. So how is it that? Um, so we had a big, we we get the big stimulus in May of 2020, the CARES Act. Totally understand that one. Um, you know that that seemed to have worked. Um, then we have another one though. Then we have two more in 2020, and a third one in 2021. Here's my question. So. Why this third and, I mean, sorry, the third and fourth one. Why a third and fourth stimulus um, when the economy seemed to be already on its way? And do you think that it's those, because that's my theory, is that it's the December and the March stimulus that really pushed the inflation button and really triggered this? Howard, I bet you want to start with Sure, I, I do. And, and, and this <laughs> hits one of the, but I knew you would too, this is one of the main themes of our book, uh, a, a, a thing that Alex has written, wrote about in his earlier book that we call the Cincinnatus Principle, after the, uh, uh, the famous Roman Cincinnatus who was called from his farm uh, by the Roman Senate to save the Republic from an invasion, uh, did it and uh, became a dic dic assumed dictatorial powers, uh, won the war in 16 days and immediately went back to his farm. You got to know when to quit. After an emergency is over, you have to walk away from the punch bowl, which is the metaphor always used for the Federal Reserve, and we failed to do it. 
in December, Secretary Mnuchin was saying that basically all of the 22 Treasury and 14 Federal Reserve lending programs that were initially established under both the CARES Act and the Federal Reserve Act ought to be wound down. But uh, in, in 2021, uh, uh, you had the uh, American Rescue Plan, which was another uh, $1.9 an enormous amount. I, I can't really tell. We probably would have had some inflation had we stopped pumping money into the economy. And you're absolutely right, Tom. That's what causes inflation. Uh, in uh, December of, uh, of, of 2020, but it would certainly never have been as bad as it got in 2022 had people stopped and gone back to the farm uh, in early 2021. We have this little line in the book is uh, in effect, when the Fed has become the biggest investor in mortgages and bonds and the dominant investor in the world, how do we get them to go back to their farm? Uh, like <laughs> It's very hard. Uh, and right. uh, that we call, as Howard said, there's the principle and then there's the Cincinnatian problem. And the problem is how do you get the interventions to stop, uh, especially in a pure fiat currency or, or pure paper money system where there's no inherent constraint uh, on the financing of the central bank and the government. So it runs. Now, one other thing I'd add uh, is we, we are talking about goods and services inflation, but there's also, especially for this show, another kind of really important inflation, which is asset price inflation. Right, right. So the printing all along and the suppression of interest rates down to zero nominal and negative real interest rates set off a, an amazing uh, uh inflation in asset prices, which we also discuss in the book. Uh, and that makes the bubble in asset prices. So you got these two things going on uh, at, uh, at once. And those assets, of course, include houses. Right. You, you know, Ron, amazing Ron, bubble Ron, in house prices. Ron, Ron Paul said years and years ago, uh, Ron Paul in his book said that the low interest rates uh, were the enemy of the poor and the middle class. That that's who they really they were. They went after the poor and the middle class, the the low interest rates, and that's certainly what we've seen in um, in in prices of rent and prices of housing and in prices of energy. So and in, and in expropriating their savings, exactly. An eight percent inflation is taking away eight percent of your savings every year. Well, if if you if you look at it, now I'm a tax guy, and if you look at this, uh, the worst tax. You know, people complain about a forty percent income tax, but in, if you're earning two percent and your paint and your inflation is eight percent, that's a four hundred percent inflation rate. So, I mean, a tax rate. So that's a way worse tax rate. And that's a, that's a tax rate on the poor and the middle class. That's not a tax on the rich because the rich can afford to deal with that. And they can have investments that make more than 8%, whereas the poor and the middle class, they, they, they struggle to do so. But if we can, let's go back a little ways. I want to go back to uh, Reagan Volcker because um, the, there's so many parallels being drawn right now between this high inflation and the high inflation of the late 70s and the early 80s and what was done. And I want to just postulate a uh, uh, my theory here, and, and I'd like your feedback on this if you would. So what we have right now is we have the Fed. So the Feds, all, all they can do is they can only reduce the supply of money, right? They, they can't do anything about 
uh, the supply of goods. So they can reduce demand, they cannot reduce supply. And so they're, they're trying here to push down demand, uh, take money out of the market, they're doing it through the interest rates. They're doing it through um, quantitative diseasing, and uh, which I think is funny because it's a you know disease, right? <laughs> and uh, quantitative diseasing. And but when you go back to but no sales, no sales of their portfolio, only letting them run off slowly. It, it, exactly, exactly. But but they're doing that. They're doing that. Okay, and they say, okay, well Volcker did that. He raised interest rates, and everybody's comparing. Uh, Volcker and Powell and what they're doing. What I don't see anybody doing is comparing what Reagan and Biden are doing, because I think that's an important comparison because I'm a tax guy and I was actually in Washington, D.C. in the 80s um, in a national tax office for one of the big, big accounting firms. And what I saw in the 80s was the very first bill that Reagan presented in 1981 was an tax bill that would encourage investment, not spending investment. So it was encouraging investment in real estate, encourage investment in other things. So at the same time we had, he's trying to increase supply basically while the Fed is bringing down demand. And this time around, what, what I think we see like with the Inflation Reduction Act with the um, more so than the, the Semiconductor Act, which I think actually was more of an investment side, but with a Inflation Reduction Act, which I call the Inflation Enhancement Act, um, what he did was he actually put more money in, right? He's actually encouraging, and there seems to be more sugar, if you will, going into the economy and less less protein going into the economy. So I'd like your take on that because I've been I've been thinking about this for years and years and years, uh, for, especially for the last couple of years when we see this high inflation. Is there a correlation? between investment um, and increasing supply and not not pushing against uh, investment like the Biden administration seems to be doing with energy in particular pushing against investment in um, in in the in the energy sector and instead really just feeding the sugar into the economy. Alex, do you want to go first or okay um... Clearly, the interplay between uh, between the financial policy and the monetary policy is very profound uh, and, and indeed essential. Uh, if the government wants to run big deficits without driving interest rates extremely high, it has to have a complacent Fed to print the money to buy the government debt. Uh, and... Um, when you compare uh, Volcker with uh, Powell, now an interesting comparison. Um, I, I wrote something recently that said if you, the interest rates now uh, feel high, but they only feel high because we were at zero. Right. They're actually very moderate. These interest rates are average. The average Fed funds rate from the 1950s to now is 4.6%. So a little slightly above where we are. But they feel high because we, we had a monetary policy suppressing rates to make the government finance cheaper uh, to facilitate the deficit spending uh, that you uh, talked about. And so then you, got to, you build up a lot of financial structures dependent on the continuation of those low rates to succeed. So, right. so you get a real deflation in asset 
prices when they go back to normal. But uh, the point I'm trying to get to is there is nothing Volcker-esque about today's rates. Today's rates are still short-term rates, extremely negative in real terms. So if the inflation is seven and the the short-term rate is four and a half, that's a negative two and a half real interest rate. There's nothing Volcker-esque about that. And what Volcker did was push interest rates up until they were positive real interest rates. Got it. And then you finally, and then you got a really deep and steep and painful recession uh, in 81, actually the the double dip recession in those days, uh, which was very painful and made him extremely uh, controversial in political uh, terms. But then after that, you got the big rebound, uh, and and the Reagan and the Reagan boom was on. So, uh, it, in some, I guess it's 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 tempting, uh, but you definitely see, as you were suggesting, a very big differences between the what, what was going on in the eighties with Volcker Reagan, and and what is going now on in the twenty twenties. Uh, with Powell and uh, and Biden. Hey, if you like financial education the way I do, you're going to love Buck Joffrey's podcast. Buck's a friend of mine. He's a client of mine. He's a former board certified surgeon and he's turned into a real estate professional. So he has this podcast that is geared towards high paid professionals. That's who he's geared towards. So if you're a high paid professional, you're going, look, I'd like to do something different with my money than what I'm doing. I'd like to get financially educated. I'd like to take control of my money and my life and my taxes. I would love to recommend Buck Joffrey's podcast, which is called Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. I hope you join Buck on this adventure of a lifetime. Yeah. So, so Howard, how, how do you, uh, you know, there seemed to be a, a greater level of coordination between what Reagan was doing and Congress was doing and what Volcker was doing than we're seeing right now, which seems to be that actually the Biden administration seems to actually be at odds, um, completely at odds with what um, the Federal Reserve is doing. So how do you see that playing out? Well, first of all, I completely agree with you. Um, remember, Um, We hadn't seen anything yet. The Biden administration basically proposed a so-called Build Back Better plan, which would have um, poured another $3.5 trillion uh, into the economy. And God knows where our inflation would be now had that been done. I think the country owes a lot to Senators Manchin and Sinema for putting putting the kibosh on that. And yet when he can't get legislative backing, President Biden is doing it administratively. Yes, this is um, a key the, point. The bailout. Just do it of, anyway. Uh, the two things in the news: the bailout of the central states' pension plan, uh, a multi-employer plan. We write about those a lot uh, in the book. Again, was another uh, uh, pro-inflationary uh, action that that he took by administrative action last week, and. Um, the student loan uh, program, an utterly failed lending program, uh, uh, by doing what he want, what he would, what he tried to do, and 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 may uh, it's in the courts, and uh, uh, maybe the courts will overturn it. But by administrative fiat, 
um, by uh, uh, forgiving uh, $10,000 in student loans per person uh, and $20,000 to those with, uh, with Pell Grants, this, the Congressional Budget Office uh, costed that at a, another $400 billion added to the cost of these uh, emergency moratoria that basically stopped interest accrual on these loans and also um, stopped uh, interest payments. Uh, the, um, uh, the cost of that, I think the Wall Street Journal wrote in January 2022, that the cost of that to that date was another 100 billion with an ongoing cost of, uh, four, of four to five billion a month because of the moratoria on interest and interest accruals. And that's still continuing uh, this day under the, um, you know, increasingly looks more like a fig leaf excuse that uh, we're still going through uh, a COVID crisis. And, and presumably so, most of that money is just being spent into the economy. That's right. You're, you're, and it's, and it's uh, extremely pro-inflationary. And as I completely agree with you, there and it, it's as though... The administration, the Fed kind of gets it and they're trying now and the administration doesn't. And I agree with you that they do appear to be working at cross purposes. Interesting. So um, how do you, how do you, I mean, let's, let's go to energy because energy is the most obvious one where they seem to be working at cross purposes. Uh, Biden says on the one hand, you need to, you know, you need to refine more oil. You need to produce more oil. And on the other hand, he says, but we're not going to give you any more leases. So... <laughs> <laughs> what's going to what's going to happen there? I mean, is that what we're going to see for the foreseeable future, at least through twenty twenty four? Well, he's in a uh, uh, President Biden's in a political uh, uh, bind because it is obviously uh, his uh, a, a large portion of his political um, support are people who believe that we should uh, uh, never do anything with fossil fuel, even though uh, gas is reasonably clean. Uh, and uh, we were, we're certainly energy sufficient. Uh, we're now moving in the wrong direction, but I think he's really uh, constrained uh, by his uh, base. And, uh, and whether people understand it or not, they don't seem to be willing or able to do uh, anything about it. And of course, it, it works in exactly the wrong direction. It uh, encourages and support uh, supports countries like Russia that are certainly not our friends. And uh, the folks in the Middle East who have, hit, who knows if the, sometimes they're our friends and sometimes they're not, but it certainly doesn't do anything to, um, to support uh, the strength of the American economy. Tom, I'd say the, uh, the uh, current administration's energy policy will if persisted in will ultimately run up against reality uh, and and be a failure. But as Howard says, it's got deep ideological problems and, and the ability of human beings to stick with what they want to believe as opposed to what is true uh, is amazing. So thank you. So let, let's talk about, let's turn to this 10-year cycle here. Because um, I think this is fascinating because we obviously had a crisis in 19... 79, 80, 81. We had another crisis in 1989, 90, 91. That was the, that was the RTC real estate bubble. Then we had the, uh, the dot-com bubble in 99, 2000. Then we Wait had- a minute. The, you left out the Russian collapse and the uh, Southeast Asian collapse in the 1990s and the Mexican collapse in 1994. 
Right. So I, I'm just looking at you. I'm just looking at U.S. here. So. <laughs> I'm going. Okay. I'm. <laughs> I can't. I. 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 My mind's not big enough to handle those other ones. So I, I'm going to. I'm going to stick with the U.S. But then we had it in 2008, nine, ten. Um, yeah. But then we seem to have, it wasn't 10 years. So, you know, there's a lot of prediction in 2018, 10 years, again, we would have this next crisis. And one of my questions is when you talk about that 10 year cycle, um, which we're going to continue to, I mean, it seems to me like we're just going to continue to have them. We've had them for 50 years. Why won't we have them for another 50 years? My question is, is that when you're looking at, because part of the goal for an investor is to predict it. Right. So if you're looking at this, are you going, is it 10 years? Does it tend to be 10 years from the end of the last cycle? And, and then that would be about right. Cause that would be 2012 to 2022 or is, or, or is it just a 10 to 15 year cycle? It's, it's approximately 10 years. About every 10 years is by no means mechanical. Um, and, um, let me say 2012 was, was not only the end of the house price collapse here, where the house prices finally bottomed. It was also the European sovereign debt crisis, which was very deep going on at the same time. So that's 2011, 2012. Got it. And of course, uh, in the 20-teens, we had the two biggest municipal bankruptcies in history, which were a generalized crisis, but were very important financial crisis. So it's about... It's about 10 years, uh, and it, uh, it it applies to this country, but also to the world, as I've been interjecting into your excellent sure. summit uh, here. Uh, it's interesting, Walter Badgett, uh, who is the intellectual father uh, of the central bank uh, bailouts of financial crises, lend freely in the financial crisis. He put a bunch of other restrictions on, on lending freely. But the lesson that's been taken by central banks everywhere in the world is lend freely uh, in the crisis. You know, Howard and I call that central banking to the max, which is chapter 12 of the book. And we look not only at the Fed's uh, uh, lending to the max, but also uh, five other major central banks. And, and they all did it together and they all are, are in it together, which, which means you really have to think about it as an investor in a global sense because you are up against a club of central banks uh, who, who tend who are in very tight with each other and very tightly in communication uh, and they tend to talk each other into the same thing and so they do all the same thing together so you get uh, something uh, interesting which is the that the, one of the most important financial factors in the world are the ideas which are in fashion because these are fashions, mm -hmm. the ideas which are in fashions in fashion with the International Club of Central Bankers. You have to think about that as an investor. I should say on the ten-year cycle, um, there's two quick things. When Walter ba Walter Badgett's great book Lombard Street was published in 1873, and he was talking about a ten-year cycle in 1873 crises in the in the British. Wow. financial system in the 1820s, 1830s, 1840s, 50s, and 60s, and he's writing in the 1870s. So there is something odd, uh, you know, uh, is it just long enough to forget? Uh, is it is it long enough for the new riskier structures to feel like they're okay? And uh, uh, is it long enough for, for new 
people who didn't live through the last one to come in and take a swing for the fences. Uh, in, in, in this one, I think there are, there are all of these things, but we certainly do observe it. I, I'm sure you know the book Manias, Panics, and Crashes uh, by Charles Kindleberger, which was published uh, in 1978, where he talks about the 10-year, on average. He, he says, I've looked at four centuries of financial history, wow. <laughs> and I see a four, about, about, you know, approximately a 10-year cycle. He wrote that book in 1978, and we had, as you and I were saying, crises in the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s, and now a real big panic uh, in 2020. Uh, you definitely have to think about this. The problem is you don't know the timing, and you don't know uh, where it's coming from. If I can just make one more point, the, the, the book starts off relating how Howard and I were sitting I wrote this line in the book, and what we described is Howard's spacious office in the U.S. Treasury building, uh, trying to see what would happen next in December 2019. And uh, we went through a whole list of risk factors and so on, but didn't think any were big enough to cause a crisis. And finally said, well, in fact, it looks pretty good. And I said to Howard, yes. But when the next crisis comes, we won't see it coming. And, and the next crisis was three months away. And nobody saw this coming because nobody saw this link from virus to right. politics to close down to financial collapse. Well, there's the challenge for all of your viewers. Let me make, well, uh, if I may, let me make two, po yeah, two and, points. And let um, me ask you if, if you would address also why, why you're going to do this, Howard. Would you address also depth and breadth of of crises at this while you're while you're talking? In 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 uh, in in what in what sense? Uh, well, so you know, you look at the depth and breadth of the two thousand eight crisis it was way broader than than the two than the nineteen ninety nine or the yeah. even the even the even the nineteen eighty nine crisis. So first, let me make the two points I, I wanted to make, and I was going to mention our meeting uh, in, 2009, in 2019 in December, and the economy had never been going. We knew that uh, by the 10-year rule, we were due for uh, a problem, but the economy had never been going better. And you really have to be a pretty gutsy, and looking at it from the point of the investor, you really have a, to be a pretty gutsy investor to say, well, it's been about 10 years. Uh, maybe I should sell uh, in in the short term because you, you think that you're gonna things look great. You don't see any big problems, and you think you're gonna miss out on this enormous upside, which is a real problem of human psychology. The other thing, let me just add a, a note of optimism here. Uh, the other point is that um, we have gone through this boom and bust cycle, and but at at, at and and in each of the busts. Um, People lose a lot of money and markets go down, but they come back stronger. So if you have the fortitude to stay invested through the crisis, uh, and, and of course this is, is terrible if you happen to be retiring or, or be in a, a transition point in your life during the crisis, but if you have the fortitude to stay with the program, historically you wind up fine and ultimately then participate in the uh uh, in the next boom, and each time it, it gets a it gets a little better. The, um, uh, the there's a difference in the types of crises. If you go back to 2007 and 2008, 
you had a, a crisis that originated in certain asset sectors of the market, housing and banking assets. And that's a, a classic Bajotnian uh, financial crisis. If you have the ability to lend on those assets and keep them, uh, keep them funded, you have some confidence that eventually those assets will replate. And that's what ultimately happened. The TARP program, uh, which was uh, set up to invest in those assets, ultimately, although not all of the sectors were profitable, but on the whole, the TARP program made a profit, which had, uh, in terms of death and breath, the scary thing that we faced uh, in the government in 2019 was we'd never really had a shutdown in every sector of the economy. People were out of work. People, Small businesses were failing. Restaurants were closed. People couldn't pay their rent. It was uh, it was very very different, I think, than uh, earlier crises. The, the only two health crises that I can major health crises, the Black Death. There were no shutdowns because there was no economy uh, in medieval Europe, uh, yeah. and uh, in the flu of uh, uh, 1918, uh, the economy didn't shut down. People. People kept working, uh, and uh, here you see, you really had something that had never happened before. And so, in depth and breadth, the original actions—and I, I think, you, as you, I think, mentioned at the beginning, uh, uh, before we started taking it too far—were great actions. Um, uh, the economy got saved; people were saved. Uh, putting in the money, uh, the budget approach in 2019 was absolutely uh, the right approach. Things could have yes, been awful. It, it worked and then it went on too far and we exactly. got we got what we call the everything right. bubble and then the subsequent inflation and now the deflation. So, I do want to say one thing, though, that's really important about this idea of the longer term that works, providing you don't go broke in the in the meantime. Right. And uh, as uh, John Maynard Keynes famously uh, uh, said, the market can stay irrational longer than you can stay solvent. Uh, and one of the temptations, of course, in the in the bull market is always to lever up, and but levering up will make you, uh, if, if you're not careful, so that you don't survive the bust. Right. To make so, it to the other side. So, so let's look at um, what's coming. All right. So, uh, we've a lot of predictions uh, headed to a recession. Uh, Fed says they can create a soft landing. The stock market is not believing that the we're going to have a big crash. It's been pretty soft for in, in the market. The market's not taking huge hits um, like you might might have expected from this. And so what do you see coming for the next year, two years? How, how broad will this crisis be and how deep will it be? Well, that's it. Uh... Asking us for another prediction, and of course, uh, absolutely. Famous, I want famous, your crystal ball, pal. A famous I want your saying crystal ball. is predicting is hard, especially the future. But I say predicting is easy. It's just predicting correctly that's that's <laughs> hard. I, let me start off with the fact we still have negative real interest, negative real interest rates, which is not so contracted. Shamari, so I, my own guess is we're going to have more inflation problems in, in goods and services inflation than we think. And, and uh, we have the whole uh, uh, advanced world doing this together, which also, there's your breadth point. Uh, this is going on in all over the world. We, we, we do have a, uh, a real estate complete 
debacle in China, which will certainly weigh on the international economy. And needless to say, we have a war and a pretty sizable war. Uh, one of the things we discuss in the book is, is what are the most important financial factors in history? Uh, and it's clear that wars are the biggest financial factor in history because it's really expensive to carry out destruction and 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 killing and they wow. you always end up printing so you have it's all this leads me to believe the inflation problem may be tougher than you think uh and it may uh, uh take so you you have a choice another another thing we stress in the book is nothing is free whatever you do it as the as the fundamental principle of economics nothing is free whatever you do has a cost Whatever you do has trade-offs, and if you if you uh, if you carry out the Walter Badgett salvation of the the market uh, in the crisis, you will pay for it later on in terms of inflation. And if you keep it up, you'll really pay for it. Uh, so, uh, with the war on and and still negative real interest rates, and all central banks uh, in the world in on this game, my own. Uh, uh, intuition which is no more than a guess which is all anybody has is a guess is the inflationary problem will be tougher uh, than we think and then you'll get a choice let the inflation run or have a harder a harder language a landing than you think i um i, I want to jump in i uh, i agree with alex and obviously uh all financial uh finance is surrounded by so much uncertainty a theme of our book and so all predictions have to be taken with massive um, amounts of salt. <laughs> uh, I, too, think uh, the bond market has underestimated the inflation problem. I think that uh, if the political forces in this administration are to prevail, then we will live with inflation and interest rates will come down. I think that if uh, the Jay Powell is uh, a, a very, very conscientious person and sees the risk of inflation, and I think he is uh, committed uh, to, um, to uh, following the Volcker, um, uh, Volcker formula and, uh, and trying to, 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 to fix it. But what I, what I really worry about is uh, every time we, one of these crises has hit in recent years and the Fed uh, jumps in, uh, we sort of start from a worse point. We have less dry powder for the next crisis. And I'm wor I worry about what's going to happen the next time. Um, what happens? We're a very rich country. We, got, we were able to get through the crisis so far uh, by deficit funding. Uh, and who bought the debt? I mean, the, the, the Fed, the central banks stood by and bought about $5.7 of U.S. government debt. Uh, along with the 2.7 trillion of mortgage securities uh, it bought, which has led to the uh, housing price, uh, the housing price bubble. But um, the Fed's balance sheet just in, in turn has gone to 8.9 trillion in uh, before the crisis of 2007 and 2008 and 2009. It was about 900 billion. After that crisis, Bernanke uh, again bought government debt uh, when he was chairman. And he said it would all be temporary. The, the Fed's balance sheet got up to 3.8 uh, trillion. And that was pretty much, it wasn't temporary. That was pretty much where the Fed's balance sheet was when we began this crisis of 2020 and it grew another 
another five another five trillion, and that's because, as Alex said, you can't really sell this stuff if you sold the two point seven trillion in uh, in uh, low interest mortgage debt for a huge loss. Now you'd also tank the uh, 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 the housing market, so you can let it run off. It runs off slowly. Nobody's refining those mortgages now when interest rates are uh, are high. It, it runs off slowly. And is there some point when uh, demand for U.S. government debt will dry up? And how high can the Fed's uh, balance sheet uh, go before we have uh, we have hyperinflation? So the point I'm trying to make is that. Uh, each time we do one of these things, we start off with um, less dry powder to fight off the uh, uh, economic assaults uh, than we had uh, uh, before. Thank you. Um, very, very well put, both of you. So let's just let's wrap up with this. So what do people do? So give us a couple of practical ideas, some practical things that everybody's wondering, okay, so do I hold on to cash, which has a cost because of inflation? Do I, you know, I, do I put it into precious metals, which has transaction costs? Do I, um, you know, do I, do I leave it in the market? Do I put it in the market and just say, well, if the market goes down, so what, it'll come back up. What's, what's your, what's your solution? What, what are your suggestions? Well, I'm the world's worst investor, so uh, I, I start with that with that caveat. My, <laughs> my personal uh, philosophy now is uh, I am going. I've got what I've got in the stock market. I'm not adding to it right now because I think in the short term it's going to go down further. But I'm uh, going to stay put and uh, and hopefully weather the storm. I see. Uh, I think, as I said, the bond market has it wrong. And I think long-term interest rates will be going much higher uh, in the uh, in the next year. Uh, that's my own personal view, but it could be wrong. And I've, I've no degree or no study of, of being an investor, but I think that there are going to be um, opportunities uh, in the uh, in the bond markets, including uh, uh, even in, in 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 treasuries and also in. Uh, in uh, in municipal bonds, uh, um, of course, uh, uh, high, I would I, I would personally stick to the uh, highest rated uh, municipal bonds, but I think that uh, they're tax advantage. I think that uh, long term interest rates will go up, and people will have uh, an opportunity to invest at higher interest rates that will uh, for a, a period of seven to ten years that will eventually. Uh, uh, come down, and uh, towards the end of that period, they'll be very happy with those bond investments. That's uh, my thought, anyway. I'll, right. show my, I'll show my classic uh, conservatism in the answer to your question, uh, Tom. Uh, be diversified. Uh, uh, I would be light now on equities, but own some of all of the above. Watch your debt. Keep the, keep the debt down in times of uncertainty. Uh, and I think, in addition, a very old lesson is you, you should, especially as you get older, uh, think of your, of your wealth not only in terms of asset prices, but in terms of income. In the uh, Absolutely. read old British novels, you say, well, how rich is he? And they, something like, they say something like, well, he has 2,000 pounds a year. Well, the present value of 2,000 pounds a year moves up and down all over the place, but the 2,000 pounds 
is, is still there. And you should simultaneously, in addition to thinking about the, the prices of your portfolio, which is the present value of all of those future flows, think about what your future flow of income actually is and, and how that compares to what you need. And, the, and the, the better it compares to what you need, the more staying power you have. I, 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 think that, I think that's a perfect way to end. It's all about cash flow. Uh, we talk about that a lot. Um, it is about cash flow. It's, uh, ca of course, all asset prices eventually come down to cash flow. Like you said, it's the present value of the future stream of cash flow, right? So it doesn't matter if it's real estate, stocks, uh, energy, doesn't matter. It's always a stream of cash flow. And uh, cash flow... Cash flow is always the king, and which is what makes in you know inflation resistant uh, or um, recession resistant businesses so strong because they're producing cash flow. So, with that, um, again, the book is surprised again: the COVID crisis, the new market bubble. Alex Pollock and Howard Adler, great, absolutely terrific um, interview. Thank you so much. Uh, any besides the book, any place uh, people can go to get more information. They can, uh, for me, I do have a website that has all my writing <laughs> five or six years. It's alexjpollock.com, alexjpollock, all written together, .com. Um, and uh, that's that's one spot if, if they have an interest in pursuing this. Awesome. Thank you, Howard. Thank you very much. All right. Um, you gotta, if you want more of Howard's ideas, you got to email him. All right. <laughs> that, that's that's right. I'm a I'm a religious reader of the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. There you go. There you go. All right. Oh, thank that, you so much. Oh, thank you. Oh. This has been terrific. Um, we'll we'll uh, let you go. But just remember, you know, the reason we look at macroeconomic um, stuff like this and and really look at the economy is because it does impact everything you do. It impacts everything you invest in. It impacts your taxes. And the reality is, the more you un the, the better you understand it, uh, the more money you're going to make and the less tax you're going to pay. We'll see y'all next time. You've been listening to the Wealth Ability Show with Tom Wheelwright. Way more money, way less taxes. To learn more, go to wealthability.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.